Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here today. Um, can we give our worship team a round of applause real quick? I know uh, both of the cars will be here for all three services today. Um, the power couple and dream team that we all desire to be. So uh, give them a, a special thank you as well for just being here all morning. So um, I appreciate you all being here. Uh, I, I, I love when we can all gather in community. I think it's the highlight of the Christian experience is to just be together with one another and to just continue on our journey of this sanctification and uh, quest toward Jesus. Uh, I'm Seth Wyram. I'm an elder here at FBN. If you've never seen me before, I understand because Pastor Brett only lets me speak if I'm across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so I've only spoken in Germany and Sierra Leone so far. So he's let me speak today. I don't know. We question his judgment if you want to. If I don't do very well, it's uh, kind of on him today. So also, I'm usually down in kids' time. Uh, which is our K through third grade. I, I'm usually teaching them. So if it sounds like I'm talking to you like you're five years old, I absolutely am. It's just how I teach. It's where I am. So uh, don't consider it patronizing, and I apologize in advance. Uh, with all that said, let's pray together, and let's get into the scriptures together this morning. God, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for bringing us to this place. Uh, we ask you that uh, just reveal something in your word to us today. Reveal yourself to us in, through your scripture, through your mighty word that you've given to us to know you. Um, we thank you especially for Jesus who died on the cross for us and for just giving us so much that we don't deserve. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I have a platform. I'm going to talk about myself for a few more minutes here. So a little bit more about me. Uh, I am currently working at North American Lighting, and I'm a buyer. If you don't know what North American Lighting is, it's okay. You don't need to. But if you don't know what a buyer is, uh, basically all I do is spend money all day, every day. And it's not my money. It's someone else's money. So it's pretty, pretty nice. It's a pretty good gig. And to be a good buyer, here's the problem. Uh, you really have to be what I'll call uh, brash or very to the point. Uh, you have to be very decisive. Really, my whole team is unwilling to compromise, so you, apparently you have to be very unwilling to compromise with anyone at any time. So I started at North American Lighting as an intern, and then they promoted me to a buyer position, right? So about a week after this happened, they sent my entire team away to another building for two days to train as a group. So Right after my promotion, they, everyone had to go through training. I don't know what that means about me, but it happened. So this training was supposed to be team building. And if I, any of you have worked in a corporate or office setting or any kind of setting really that has a team, I probably just triggered a little bit of PTSD uh, for you because team building is always so much fun, right? So um, one of these team building activities was a personality test. We all had to take a personality test, whatever that means. So uh, I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, but it's one of these tests that they ask you about 100 or 150 questions that seem completely irrelevant and are kind of annoying, to be honest with you. Um, but somehow, those questions and results get inside of your brain and just systematically break you down as a person. And it shows for the whole world to see 
your strengths and weaknesses and failures as a, as a human being. So they're, they're very fun, right? So examples of these like Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, whatever, what we took was called the DISC assessment. So with the DISC, you're either a high D, a high I, a high S, or a C, hence the name DISC, uh, or, or some kind of combination uh, between those four letters. So my team took, took the test. We were all sitting around a table. Um, and what you had to do was post your results on the whiteboard. We had like a little whiteboard in our room, right? By the way, these tests are why I still don't trust computers or AI. I just don't trust it. Uh, that's too much information to give the world and the internet. So every single person had identical results, right? So the first person, I was the last one to go, by the way. So the first person goes up, posts their, posts their result. It's a high D. Uh, does anyone know what D stands for? If you've taken the disc, you know it stands for dominance. Great. So every person, one after another, seven people in a row in front of me, all high Ds. They're all dominant. You know what dominant is known as? They're the winners. Great. I'm on a team of winners. What could go wrong? They're all dominant, though. So a few things about a high D. They value results. They love challenges. And they're very, very, uh, the, the actual test calls them hyper-competitive. Um, they need to win, and they're always looking to even the score. And they're assertive and insistent. Suddenly, the dominance uh, kind of took a back seat, and it does, I don't know. I don't, this is my team, anyway. <laughs> um, but honestly, it's the perfect buyer. They were in the roles, but I would like to say those people are not there, and I'm still there. So that tells you something about my personality that maybe is better than them. I don't know. But uh, so all seven people were Ds. So I walk up with my results. I walk up to the board and post them, and I'm a high S. Completely different than everyone else. A high S. You know what S stands for? It stands for, um, it stands for, what does it stand for? It stands for steadiness. This is how much I know about my own personality. So it stands for steadiness. But to my team, you know what it stood for? S stood for sissy. I was completely under them. So here's a little bit about uh, a steadiness person. Um, they're the peacekeepers. A high S values Others, helping others, values loyalty. Uh, high S, they fear change. They fear offending others. They fear letting people down. And in conflict, you know what they do with their true feelings? They push them all the way down so no one can see them. I know all, what all of you are thinking. If you know me, this doesn't sound like Seth at all, right? I'll keep my feelings to myself about that. But uh, I was a high S. Terrible buyer. Don't know why they promoted me. Uh, just the opposite of what you need to be uh, as a buyer. And as each, each dominant posting was made, I could see, I, everyone could see me visibly slinking down in my chair because I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I'm, a, I'm completely different than these other people, right? I'm going to fail. But I think that many of you in this room have probably felt the same way at one point or another. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt completely alone, completely different. Uh, maybe it was your personality, like me. Maybe it was just your worldview, um, your Christianity, your aspirations, your goals, whatever it might be. You're probably feeling the weight of the world, and at some point, 
you feel the world begging you to stop following Jesus because that's what it does. Just go with the flow, just chase your money, just chase your things, spend your time on things that are not worthwhile. And you might even see your friends and family doing this. They live completely contradictory to the way of Jesus and you don't even feel like you fit into your own family. It can be a really tiring state of being. If you felt like this, I'm glad you're here because we're going to unpack Mark 6 when Jesus sent out his closest disciples to first start the mission of the gospel. So, uh, you know, we're we're continuing with the gospel of Mark, uh, which I love because just meticulously studying the life of Jesus line by line, I think is one of the best ways to learn how to live. So, with that being said, please turn your Bible to Mark 6, 7 through 13. Uh, I would like to invite our reader up, Lauren, if you could come up here. She's going to read Mark 6, 7 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you somewhere, and you can open up. But our focus today is actually going to be on verses 10 through 13. But you can read 7 through 13, not to confuse you, sorry. (laughs) And if you could all stand for the reading of God's Word. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. Thanks, Lauren. All right, you guys can have a seat. Okay, so we can see that Jesus sent the 12, right? Now, I know what you're thinking, like, Seth's gone to seminary for three years, and his first point is just the title of this section. Wow. Very profound, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Uh, You're not wrong, but hear me out for a minute. I'd like to break this down just a little bit. So this was a very, very pivotal moment in the the life of the 12 disciples. For the first time ever, uh, uh, the, the 12 were sent out away from Jesus to practice what they had been learning. So last week, Adam really covered the preparation. So uh, Jesus gave them the, the prep to go out. So he said, uh, do them and uh, go out in pairs. Don't take whatever, take only the essentials. So picking up in verse 10, we kind of see that Jesus shifts his focus to kind of managing their expectations when they get there and how to behave when they get to the towns that they're going to. So the first command that Jesus gives is just to stay in place. Very simple. Stay in one house for the entire duration of this day. So as they were going from town to town, the disciples, they were supposed to find a house that was hospitable, that they could just stay put. Uh, I think there's two crazy parts about this command, at least in the 21st century for us. One is they didn't know where they were going to stay. They didn't know where their lodging was. That's wild to me. I'm always on Hotels.com, Expedia.com. I want the best deal. I want to know where I'm staying when I get there, right? Number two is they just find a random family and they stay there for multiple days. 
We, this is very foreign to us. We don't understand this in the 21st century. I've seen way too many crime documentaries, even in the last year, to know where that one ends, right? So when a family in that culture took someone in, it wasn't just a bed to sleep in. So it was much different than what we're used to today. So that family was supposed to treat you with the highest respect. You are an esteemed guest, even sometimes higher than the actual family themselves. Uh, they were going to fi- provide food, lodging, any travelers that came, they were supposed to send them food on their way so they wouldn't die on the way to the next town. Uh, this was a practice known as um, Hakneshat or Chim. I did pronounce that exactly right, so don't go and look that up. But it literally means welcoming guests. It's just an, a, a Jewish idea that's defended in the Mishnah. And if you're unfamiliar with the Mishnah, I'm just going to assume you're not a practicing Jew today. Uh, maybe ben, ben Shapiro would be better to tell this to. But um, it, it was just the early recorded teachings of the rabbis. It was just the oral law that kind of was a commentary to the Torah or the written law. So that's how they understood the law in their time, I guess. And this is defended in the Mishnah by citing Genesis 18. And if anyone's familiar with Genesis 18, it's where Abraham welcomes in these three men uh, to his tent. Uh, Sarah, his wife, hurry, hurriedly and urgently prepares food for them. And it's a big ordeal because Abraham completely drops what he's doing to welcome these guests. And also, uh, Abraham had a tent that he lived in or was in, and all four sides of the tent were open to welcome all the guests. So this is the idea of hospitality in the Jewish or Hebrew sense. It's, it's very uh, um, important to them, and it's defended very well, I think, because I, I love this picture of hospitality. I think it, it really captures really good uh, uh, welcoming in guests and treating them very, very well. So it's kind of like, imagine going uh, uh, to a vacation home that somebody uh, offers you, right? You go to the beach, you stay in their home for free, and then the next night, uh, the bed's kind of lumpy, uh, you had a different kind of Captain Crunch in the, in the cabinet, I didn't really like that. So I'm going to move on to the next free house, try to find something else. That'd be extremely rude. And by the way, if you have a vacation home, I would never do this to you, and I'm also free the entire month of August. But... Um, that would be extremely rude. So not only was Jesus preparing them uh, to go to a family, but they wanted them to treat that family with the utmost respect by staying there the whole time. This also would have required that the disciples fully trusted God where he was leading them. He would have been preparing a home for them in the town they were going to, completely prepared. They would have had to totally trust God because they had nothing with them, really. So, if the disciples weren't welcomed in that home or in the town, what does it say? They were to shake the dust from their feet and move on. Shake the dust from the soles of their feet. Uh, I think this is a fairly straightforward statement. Even in our culture, we kind of understand what it means. But it carried a lot of weight to the Jews, that phrase, shake the dust off your feet. Because in that time, when when a Jewish person would leave the Holy Land, when they would leave Palestine, Israel, they would go into Gentile territory. Now, the Gentiles were uh, uh, heathens. They were living in ways completely opposite of God. The Jews and the Gentiles did not get along at all. They hated each other. 
The Gentiles throughout history constantly terrorized the Israelites. They killed them. They pillaged them. They divide, ended up dividing Israel. And a lot of times this was like a specific strategy that God employed. He used the Gentiles to destroy his own chosen people to teach them how to trust God and to come back to him. So when the disciples were ejected in a, in a town, they were to shake the dust off just like the Jews. So when the Jews would come back to the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off as a type of cleansing, you could think of it, or to, to say, these are the heathens, and here we're back in God's land. So, interestingly, the disciples were not actually sent to the Jewish areas, uh, to the Gentile areas immediately, but they were sent to the Jewish areas. So Adam went back to Matthew 10 last week. I'm going to go back to the same passage. So Matthew 10, 5 through 6, this is a parallel story. It kind of gives us a little bit more detail as to how the disciples went out. So Matthew 10, 5 through 6, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they were supposed to go to the Jews. They were supposed to go to God's chosen people. So God clearly still cares about drawing his own people back to Christ, especially considering all of Jesus' goals and missions when he was here because they had absolutely strayed away. This is very obvious because every prominent Jewish leader, almost every prominent Jewish leader that, that Jesus goes to, they reject him. They think they're worshiping God. They think they're worshiping their God, but what they've done is rejected him in the flesh. So the disciples were to treat them as outsiders. So they were to shake the dust off the feet after leaving the Jewish territories, which is very interesting. Um, because the Jews had, uh, the, the disciples were then told by Jesus, yeah, to, to treat them as outsiders because faith alone saves. And this is the same way, even from the beginning, the Jews were not just good with God all the time. Um, so he's clearly warning them for rejection and failure. He doesn't hide from it. And Jesus really leans in and prepares them well. So take a look at uh, Mark 6, 5. Just a, little, just a couple verses up. Uh, Jesus says, uh, or Mark says, he was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So this was Jesus in Nazareth, his own hometown. He, he was rejected even in his own hometown. Uh, Mark 3.21, just a little further uh, earlier in Mark, when his family heard this, when Jesus' family heard this, they set out to restrain him because he's out of his mind. So his own family rejected him. So Jesus not only taught about rejection, but I would say he actually modeled rejection. He showed them what rejection looked like. But this didn't slow down his ministry. He kept going. I think there's something about the nature of a hard heart that is extremely difficult to sway. And Jesus knew that him and his disciples had a mission and there were many, many, many more people to reach. Um, so all these instructions Jesus gave to prepare the 12. They were simple but pretty effective. So to this point, the, the disciples had only been with Jesus for maybe less than two years. It was somewhere between one and a half and two years-ish. Uh, and Jesus knew that this was just the beginning of a lifelong role of continued ministry. 
So rather than always keeping a large crowd of disciples, so you'd think a lot of rabbis wanted this big crowd. They wanted people to see that they were teaching. They wanted some groveling. They wanted some worship to themselves. Jesus didn't do that. He sent them out into the world to practice the mission. So this mission, as the disciples hadn't figured out, would end up being the model and would end up starting the worldwide church. It would be recorded in history for us to see, and Jesus knew this. So the the instructions really were pretty basic. He gave the disciples authority over unclean spirits. He told them to travel light, and he told them how to travel and how to handle rejection, and even uh, he told them to use the buddy system. So just in case one of the disciples tried to take a loaf of bread, they would slap the bread away and say, no, they told us not to do that. So that's uh, those are all the instructions. They're, they're fairly simple. So although the disciples were surely well-versed in the, the Jewish customs and the law, they weren't at all prepared in the normal or intellectual sense, I guess we could say. In the normal Jewish sense, they were not prepared to go out on mission. Their calling, I think, came much earlier than probably what they would have wanted, I would assume. And I'm sure they were feeling the pressure of that. But Jesus didn't load them with a bunch of advanced theology, and he didn't make them pass a test before going, uh, but he told them to go with a simple mission. So I have been reading a lot about the famous theologian Dwight Schrute. Uh, He says, keep it simple, stupid. Great advice. Hurts my feelings every time. So I think Jesus was kind of saying here in his sending of the initial disciples, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and finally, let's take a look at how they went out real quick. So this is Mark 6, 12 through 13. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. So we can see from earlier that Jesus gave the disciples the power over unclean spirits, which is how they casted out the demons. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus says, preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The key here is that the disciples naturally went out and preached what they had learned from spending time with Jesus. Repentance. Do you remember who else preached that exact message of repentance? Uh, It was a voice in the wilderness. If you guys are familiar with that phrase, it was John the Baptist. So Mark 1.4 says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I really don't think it's, a, it's just a coincidence that Mark, just a few sentences after the passage we're studying today, he records the execution of John the Baptist. Because what happens when you go and you tell people who are stuck in their ways, they're set, they think they're God's chosen people, they're good with God, you tell them to repent. They don't like it. So the word repent, uh, in Greek it's matineo, Two for two on ancient language pronunciation today. But matineo, it means uh, to think differently or to reconsider or to change one's mind. So this is what Jesus sent them out to do, to go change their mind, to go tell them to be different than what they're doing right now. If you ask John and Jesus and Paul and the rest of the disciples, really, what happens when you do this, they would say you get imprisoned and executed. That's what happens when you go try to do this. And they would have known that, being Jews themselves. 
So they weren't really intellectually ready in the traditional Jewish way of thinking, but the best rabbi that we've ever seen come on the earth sent them out with basic instructions that would change the course of the entire world. So what do we do about this today? Uh, I think Jesus is still sending us. So just like the disciples, Jesus is still sending us. The same all-powerful, all-knowing rabbi is still doing that with us. So there's a few things we need to do. One is we need to trust God's provision. So the disciples went out with no baggage almost. They were told to stay in one place. And I think we're called to do the same. Now, before you go and sell all of your stuff and just wander around to a random family's house and start staying there because you say God told you to do it, um, I don't think we're necessarily called to just live in poverty and go around and stay at random people's houses. I think we're called to trust in God's provision. So too often, I think we try to replace God and God's way with our own man-made things and ideas. It's really dangerous to do, but we do it all the time. Uh, the real problem is we do it in the name of God's mission. We assume that God, uh, that we know more about our own journey than God does. So we try to do all these things that, oh, well, this will help the mission, this will help the mission, but really, it's not. So I don't know if you, any of you know my son, Jordan, but I have a son named Jordan, and I know all the kids' time workers are, <laughs> yeah, Jordan, he's great, he just has trouble sitting a little bit, but um, we got Jordan and Alexa for Christmas. I don't know. Does anyone have an Alexa out there? Yeah, okay, one person. It's a hockey puck with a speaker, and uh, you can, you know, talk to it and make it do things. So it turns out also that you can order things on Amazon and order subscriptions. That's way too much power for a five-year-old to wield. I would recommend against it. But uh, as he goes to bed, usually I let Jordan listen to WBGL. He listens to the radio as he goes to sleep, right? So I shut his door, um, and keep in mind, I give him a time limit. So I say, Jordan, you can play Alexa for 30 minutes or whatever. This, this night, it was 30 minutes. So I shut the door, and I hear Jordan whisper, Alexa, play WBGL for 22 minutes. It's like, 22 minutes. Why would he do that? Well, it turns out he thought 22 was higher than 30. So he was wrong, <laughs> but he was just trying to be sneaky and whisper to Alexa to do what he wanted. If he would have listened to my original command or my original instruction, he would have had a much more rich experience and had more time with WEGL, right? I think we do this to God all the time. We try to do our own things to undermine or to do our own mission, but it always turns out worse. We always make something good, we turn it bad. We try our hardest, but it's worse than what God has already prepared for us, right? So here's kind of a few things about what the Bible says about uh, uh, worrying. So John 15, 7 through 8, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So Matthew 6, 31 through 34, my translation actually, uh, the title is The Cure for Anxiety, which I kind of like, but... Do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek out all these things, 
and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I completely agree with that. Every one of my days has trouble of its own. So clearly, when we are sent out on mission to grow the kingdom, we're supposed to fully rely on God for the provision to do that. If we're seeking the kingdom first, we'll receive everything we need. But this is completely, unfortunately, against our American materialistic culture, I think. So Jesus also promises us rejection and failure, just like the disciples. This completely transcends time and culture. We all fail. We all are rejected. And I'm sure many of you have felt that rejection at some point in your life. So let me read you a little story from Acts 13, 44 through 52. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, what did they do? They rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas, ready? They shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not really how I expected that story to end. They were filled with joy, like it doesn't, they, they just got almost violently insurrected out of the, of the area. So you can see in this story that Paul and Barnabas, they ran into two groups. They ran into one that was overjoyed. They were so excited. They were finally grafted into the, to God's chosen people. They had a way out of their lives that were so worldly. And then you had the other group that literally drove Paul and Barnabas by force just for preaching the good news of the Messiah. But were Paul and Barnabas ready to quit? I don't think so. Did they stay in the town and completely try to preach over and over and beg people, please, 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 just listen to us? No, they moved on. Not that they necessarily had a choice in the matter at this point, but what they did was they shook, they shook the dust off their feet against them and moved on because the mission was bigger than that moment. They were continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, which is the exact same spirit that's available to us today. It dwells inside of our soul. So facing rejection in the name of the gospel is really difficult, but Jesus sends us into the world prepared with that same spirit that fills us with joy. When people reject the gospel, when they reject the good news, a lot of times we take it personally. We take it as our own lives are being rejected. But really, like the Jews, they are rejecting Christ himself, not us. 
So for this reason, it is so important, it's imperative for the message to be simple. Let's take a look at the parting commands Jesus gives us. So you guys are very familiar with these two verses. They're the Great Commission. We did a whole series on it, um, I don't know, last year sometime. But Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's pretty all-encompassing. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I've commanded to you. And remember, I am with you always till the end of the age. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So one more story. As a kid, uh, I watched Pinky in the Brain. Has anyone ever watched Pinky in the Brain? I'm really showing my 2000s kid in, in, in coming out. But uh, so Pinky in the Brain was about two lab rats. Um, one was named well, Pinky and the other was named Brain, right? Uh, brain was the quote-unquote intellectual. He was the smart one. He concocted all the plans. Uh, uh, Pinky was the dumb one. He was the idiot that just always seemed to get in the way. And the, their catchphrase was, uh, Pinky would say, gee, Brain, what are we going to do tonight? And then Brain would respond. He said, the thing, same thing we do every night, Pinky. We're going to try to take over the world. Uh, I loved it every time it came on. But in every episode, Pinky would point out some flaw in Brain's plan to take over the world uh, before they embarked on the plan. And as it turns out, that flaw would be the crumbling cornerstone of the entire plan. So really, Pinky ended up being the smart one and gives me hope for myself. But um, I think that's why one reason that the Great Commission is so simple. It says, go and make disciples and baptize them in my name. It's not uber complicated. Now, don't, please don't get me wrong. I think theology and apologetics should be studied. Um, there have been so many great theologians that have made Christianity come to where it is. There is no question that that has done nothing but enhance our view of God. And a lot of these theologians have been killed for what they did. And even to get the English Bible that we have in our hands right now, there have been a ton of people that have died doing that thing. I'm not underplaying that at all. But too often, we completely overcomplicate the simple mission that Jesus gave of the Great Commission which is to go share his word, to go make disciples. If we start stacking our own layers on top of that, it's just more ways we can fail. It just becomes more stumbling blocks for us to fail. We start trusting our own plans rather than God's plans, and that's just not good. It never works out. Because here's the thing, God is complicated, but his mission that he gave us is not. So, right now, I guess you could be feeling two ways. Either you're super, super excited to go out on a mission, you're willing to sell all your things and just share Christ with everyone you see, or you're kind of apprehensive. You're apprehensive about your calling. You're apprehensive about the Great Commission. Maybe you're not 100% bought in. Maybe you're just confused. And I'm willing to bet a lot of us are kind of in that camp most of the time over there. You might question who you are. You want to you always go deeper. You feel the Holy Spirit tugging you to go deeper. But you, we just keep kind of living the same day every day. We kind of get in the same rut every day, right? 
there's no doubt in my mind that when Jesus sent out the disciples, they weren't 100% on board. They said yes, and I'm sure they were excited initially, but after a while, you start getting hungry, you start getting tired, you might be rejected in almost every town you go to. It gets tiring. So what can we do to be sent out? I think one thing we can do in our own lives is to prepare. Prepare to be sent. How do we do that? Certainly, the disciples prepared. They had a very good understanding of Scripture. They had a good understanding of law. Um, But that's not necessarily what made them prepared for the mission. So for two years, the, Jesus, uh, the disciples followed Jesus. They studied his ways. They saw him do miracles. They saw him heal the sick. They saw someone touch his robe and be healed. They saw him calm a storm where they were all going to die. They've seen him do all sorts of powerful, powerful things. But they also observed Jesus' compassion, his love for humanity, his humility, and everything that made him human and his intense love for others. So how did the disciples prepare? In short, they were with Jesus. Simply, they observed Jesus and they were with Jesus. Rather than following their normal Jewish cultural norms, they repented, they changed their mind, they were trying to be different. They changed their ways to not only observe Jesus from afar, but to model their every move and thought after Jesus by being with him. He was their rabbi. I think we need to ask the Holy Spirit to do the same thing with us. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us to Jesus, to allow us to live with Jesus. We need to repent of our own worldly lives, and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to just rip out everything we have inside of us that wants to be in the world and replace them with the thoughts and feelings of Jesus. We need to rest and abide in Jesus, and that's how we are prepared for our mission. The second thing is to just say yes. Just say yes. Have you ever heard, uh, anybody heard the phrase, here I am? It's pretty popular. Most people probably know it from Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. Uh, All of the great New Testament men said this to God. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, and Isaiah. Uh, Ananias says this phrase, here I am, in the New Testament when he's supposed to go find Paul, even though he thinks Paul might kill him. Uh, This is their base state of being. So I actually heard a, a native Hebrew speaker Uh, say that this phrase, here I am, means whatever God that you're about to ask me to do, I'm already saying yes to it. So it's a state of being. Saying, God, I don't know what you're going to do with me. I don't know what you're going to command me. But I'm already saying yes before I hear your voice. Imagine if this was our state of being as a baseline. Imagine what our church can do. Imagine what your families and your lives would look like. And imagine just being filled with joy in the Holy Spirit as a constant saying of here I am, as a constant saying of yes. So the disciples were sent out with an out an argument. The same way Jesus desires us to go out with a constant yes, to go out on mission with a yes. So basically, there's no middle ground. You either say yes to God or you say yes to the world. You're either in this group or this group. There is no in between. There's no being 
kind of yes, kind of no, either you follow God or you follow the world. So it's time to make our choice and let's try to live on mission and be different and just say yes. Uh, Here in a minute, I'm going to invite our elder Paul up to lead you guys through communion, but first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for your provision for us. We trust you implicitly on our mission. Uh, We ask that you help us turn our thoughts and repent and be different, just like Jesus was. Help just get rid of our own thoughts and fully replace them with the thoughts and feelings and attitudes of Jesus. We thank you for giving us so much that we could never deserve, never repay. And we just ask that you help us constantly say yes and constantly live on mission as we go about our lives. We love you, Jesus. Amen.